93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today we are going to be talking about a topic that I care a lot about, and that is live albums. Uh, I'm a huge fan of live albums. I collect live albums. Um, I defend live albums. I feel like a lot of people do not properly appreciate the greatness of the live album. Uh, So I wanted to bring on someone who I know loves live albums as much as I do, and that is my friend and friend of the pod, Rob Mitchum. And we both made a list of uh, of our five favorite live albums, and we talked about it. And that equals 10 total live albums, by the way, for you who are uh, math deficient. (laughs) We talked about 10 live albums that... uh, if you don't know these records, I think you need to know them. I think you need to listen to them as soon as you're done with this podcast. So hopefully we'll uh, give you some good music recommendations in this episode. But before we uh, get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about our sponsor, and that is our good friends at Harry's. Now, I'm a person I need to shave almost every day. Now, I, I mean, I have a beard, but I have to shave the places around the beard so it's framed well and I look semi-presentable. And, uh, you know, I, I hate buying razors usually because they usually cost too much, or they don't give you a close shave. But I found that Harry's is actually good in both respects. They're going to give you a good product, and uh, you don't have to pay very much. And uh, to entice you guys to try this out, uh, there is a special offer being offered to Celebration Celebration Rock Pod listeners. And uh, all you need to do is go to harrys.com backslash rock, and you can get a trial shave set, and all you have to do is pay for shipping. So it's a great deal. You're going to get all these great razors, in this great set, all you have to do is pay for them to bring it to you. So again, all you need to do is go to harrys.com backslash rock, and you're going to get the weighted ergonomic razor handle. You're going to get the precision engineered blades. You're going to get the lathering shave gel, and you're going to get the travel blade cover. So again, just go to harrys.com backslash rock. Again, harrys.com backslash rock for your free set. All you have to do is pay for shipping. It's a great deal. Shave your face and look handsome. Okay, so Rob Mitchum, again, a friend of the podcast, a friend of mine. Uh, I invited him on the podcast. You know, what got me thinking about this idea to do live albums, aside from just me just loving live albums, was I wrote this piece last week for uprocks.com about the latest uh, Fish tour, uh, just wrapped up, uh, the summer tour. They did uh, this 13-show run at Madison Square Garden called The Baker's Dozen, and it was a really great run. I mean, they were playing really great every night. They were playing different sets. They were doing these great improvisations. And Fish does this thing where on their app, they have a live Fish app, you can stream every show that they perform within a half hour of the show ending. Um, You can also live stream a lot of their shows. Like You just pay like 15 bucks or so, and you can watch this three-hour show from the comfort of your home. And, you know, live streaming concerts, it's, it's become a fairly common thing. But still, I feel like it's underutilized. Like, a lot of bands aren't doing this. And certainly a lot of bands are not live, aren't offering streams of their shows immediately after they play them on, on, on an app, you know, where there's, you know, this archive of live music that you can access. Um, and I just wish more bands did this, because it's so, part of the fun of following Fish is that you can hear all this music as it's being made. Um, and there's a lot of bands that I wish uh, that I could do that with. Um, I, and in my uprocks.com piece, I was, I was making the case that really in this day and age that more bands need to be thinking of the live show first. That, you know, we're so accustomed to talking about bands in terms of their recorded output. You know, we talk about albums and singles and we talk about discographies, but we don't talk about really how bands approach their concerts. You know, we're at a point now in the music industry where bands aren't really making any money off of their records. It's not really at the forefront of their business. It's really what they're doing live on stage. And I know for me, I want to start thinking about sort of that live arena more as a creative avenue, as a place that you're not just going to promote your record, but you're actually going there and trying to do something different every night and create something unique in the moment every night. Um, I really think that that is where music is going and where it needs to go. I think it's not only artistically exciting, I think it's business-wise, it's where a lot of bands need to go. I think it would help them a lot. 
um, to approach live music in that way and because and, it just makes it more fun to follow a band like that. So that's what got me thinking about this, thinking about live, live records and all that. And Rob and I, of course, talk about live records in this episode, but we also talk about my story and, and that I wrote about Fish and, and, and this sort of approach to live music and, and where that's going. So I think it was a really great conversation. Uh, again, there's a lot of good music recommendations in here, a lot of good live records that we talk about. So uh, without further ado, here is me and Rob Mitchum talking about live music and live records. So... Rob, thank you for coming on the podcast. Before we begin, I just want to say that you are now officially a friend of the pod as of this episode. It the, takes uh, three times. Well, is this your three, third time or your second time? No, it's my third. Is it your third? So you've so, okay. So you are already a friend of the pod. Okay, yeah. Now I'm a special friend of the pod. See, you're such a friend of the pod that I'm taking you for granted because I only thought you were here twice, but you're here three times. Like I forgot the the like the middle time or something, but. Rob Mitchum, friend of the pod. We're going to be talking about our favorite live albums in this episode. Before we begin, get into that, are we going to subject uh, our listeners and my producer, Derek, uh, to a discussion of the current fish tour, or I guess the past fish tour by the time this posts? Well, if you twist my arm, I guess <laughs> I can talk about fish for a little bit, sure. Well, I mean, because that was you know sort of the inspiration for this episode, and you know, last week for uprocks.com, I wrote this piece about live music and how... I sort of wish that more bands would follow Fish's example in terms of just playing creative sets um, and, you know, being a little bit more exploratory with their music. And it, I mean, that's been especially true of this run that they just played at Madison Square Garden. It's called The Baker's Dozen. It's a series of 13 shows. Rob and I are talking here on Thursday afternoon. Um, and as of our conversation, there's still uh, four more shows. Actually, there's, there's three more shows to go. Okay. Uh, but by the time this post, the run will have just ended on Sunday night at Madison Square Garden. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen this weekend. I assume it's going to be good. But uh, what are your impressions of this run? I mean, it seems like Fish Nation was really excited about what the band has been doing. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely established itself already as probably the best, I guess, tour or run of shows, however you want to describe it. Uh, since they came back in 2009. I don't think anybody would argue with that already at this point because just about every show of the run has been like a a memorable, if not, you know, classic show uh, that people will be talking about for years. And already now we have, in you know, over the first 10 shows, probably half of those would make people's top 10s for uh, sort of the modern 3.0 era of fish, as we call it. Now, you know, like I said, I wrote this thing last week about about the run and also talking about live music in general and how many bands approach performing live. And one of the things I talked about in that piece is that when we talk about music, you know, with critics or and even fans, that the conversation generally focuses on recorded music. You know, we talk about the best albums of the year or the best singles of the year when we assess artists' careers, we tend to focus on their discographies and not so much what they're doing in concert or how they approach their shows or or even like what you were just talking about with, with the Fish shows about how they've been playing these creative sets and they've been jamming a lot and all that stuff. What, I guess, are your feelings on this? You know, like this this idea of, of the prominence of live music and how bands should approach it. I mean, it seems like we're in this sort of mindset where the main thing that you do as a band or as an artist, like your main focus of your art is your recorded work and the live part kind of comes second. And in my piece, I was kind of arguing that maybe band should focus on the live part first, make that the focal point of their art and maybe have records as a secondary thing. What are your thoughts on any of this stuff? Like, do you have an opinion on any of these things? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I liked how your article, post, uh, you know, sort of pointed out that there are both business and technology reasons for why that should flip at this point. Um, you know, up until now, if a band was a really good live band, you know, is sort of word of mouth, or you'd read a live review that said, "Hey, this band plays this really good show," or you know, they they are worth seeing live. So it wasn't like something like a record where you could just go out and buy it. You had to wait until they come to your town and buy a ticket and hope they played, you know, a good show and weren't on an off night. Um, now bands can distribute this stuff immediately. I mean, it's, there's a there's a bit of overhead to it, 
Uh, but Fish puts up all of their shows, I mean, seemingly within half an hour now of the show ending. Uh, you can go online. You can stream it if you have a subscription to their app. You can download it. Uh, you can, by the next morning, usually find you know free audience recordings streaming online. Um, if you want to, you can listen to basically every Fish show they've ever played all the way back to 1983. Um, so... Right now, it's if, if a band has a good live reputation and like you want to hear what they sound like live, it's just you know a Google search away, uh, and that goes for more than just your jam bands because you have sites like NYC Taper uh, recording other genres of music and putting stuff out there for free. Um, so I think until now, a band, I mean, a band could sort of base the reputation on their live show, um, but as you pointed out in the Uproxx article. Uh, it was a little bit of a risk, and I think it's you know it's part of the reason why the Grateful Dead I think are only recently sort of being accepted uh, by everyone as you know one of the most important American rock bands because you know their albums they made some good albums but they also made some really bad albums and they didn't really make like a classic classic album that people will always talk about in classic rock circles. Um, most, you know, a good 80% of their reputation was their live show. And even if, you know, every Grateful Dead show was recorded, you kind of had the high barrier of entry where you had to, you know, find somebody who had tapes and trade tapes over the mail and all this stuff. Uh, but just like Fish, you can listen to every Grateful Dead show on the Internet very easily now. Um, and people are doing that and sort of figuring out, hey, this was, you know, a great band and a lot different than I thought, maybe just based on listening to their records. Um, now, I mean, the other question, though, is can every band do something like that? Like, can they put the live show first? And as you said, uh, use albums as the advertisement for the live show right. rather than vice versa. And obviously, Fish and the Dead are different types of bands in terms of having a really deep catalog and playing improvisationally such that every show is its own unique thing. And not a lot of bands want to do that or can do that, whether it's due to their chops or how many songs they have to play or, you know, just their approach to music. Uh, so it gets a little tricky once you start thinking about other genres yeah. um, and whether that's possible for any band to do. Well, and, you know, and that's one thing I, you know, I ask in my story, like, you know, is this too much to ask of a band that you approach every show as sort of a unique experience where, you know, because I mean, you know, Let's just take fish out of the equation for a moment. I know that when, as soon as like a lot of people hear the word fish, that their brain immediately turns off because right. <laughs> they're not into it. But you know, let's just take them out of the equation for a moment, and let's just imagine like your favorite band. You know, wouldn't it be cool if your favorite band made their live shows instantly available online? You know, basically as soon as the, as they're done. You know, and that you could go to this app and have just this archive of streamable live music. And not only would it be great to have that, but wouldn't it be great if you knew that every show was worth streaming? You know, that you knew that the shows weren't just going to be the same thing every night, that if you listen to a show that the band played on Tuesday, that if you listen to the show that they play on Friday, it's going to be a different experience. You know, and whether you like Fish or not, the way that they approach the live show, where, again, you know, it's not just the jamming. Like, I know a lot of people don't like jamming, and that's fine, but, like, they play different set lists every night. They're playing unusual covers a lot of the time. Um, they're, they have like in-jokes that sometimes exist within the space of a show. Sometimes it carries over several shows. Um, all these sort of like little Easter eggs where if you are a fan of the band and you follow them closely, it rewards your commitment. Um, that's something that I really enjoy when I follow Fish. It's one of the reasons I like them so much because they make it fun to follow them. And I always find myself wishing that I had more bands like that, you know, and that I could do that with. And not necessarily just jam bands, but like other rock bands, maybe legacy bands that have been around for 10, 15, 20 years that do have a catalog where they could maybe vary it up a little bit more, you know, or they could have a show situation where they play a first set that's maybe more straightforward than a second set that is maybe more experimental or unusual. Um, I always wish that more bands were doing that. I feel like I would care more about them, that I would want to hear every show that they do. It would make me more of a committed fan. Um, I mean, I, I'm just trying to think of examples from outside the jam world. I mean, Yola Tango seems like a band that in a way has remade themselves in the last 10, 15 years. 
where they're not a jam band, but they have taken some cues from the Grateful Dead in terms of how they approach live music. And, you know, they, they play the first and second set now in their shows. Um, so, I mean, it makes me think that maybe it's possible for other kinds of bands to do it. I mean, I mean, I mean do you think it is realistic, though, to hope for this? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think so, some other bands that come to mind that actually do do it, I guess, sort of outside of the jam band arena. Like, I think for a while, Jimmy Buffett was streaming all of his shows live on his... Uh, like satellite radio station. I know this because my in-laws are Jimmy <laughs> Buffett super fans. They are okay. to Jimmy Buffett what I am to fish. Uh, and they would you know, put on this satellite radio station every night and listen to the Jimmy Buffett show. And I figure Jimmy Buffett probably doesn't mix up his set list that much. I have a feeling there's a few <laughs> songs that he plays every night, but they still were, were into it, just as like a regular thing, as you say. Um, and then Pearl Jam, of course, has done this from time to time. Um, I remember way back when they were putting out CDs of every show that they played. Right. And I mean, the thing is, I think there is a baseline there um, as sort of a business model where fans will want just a souvenir of the show they went to. Um, I think maybe bands sometimes underestimate that, though. I mean, again, you have to be at a certain level of sort of fan base uh, to have, I guess, that sort of devotion. But I mean, I think even if you're not changing up the set list too much, it's kind of a no brainer to put out some sort of, you know, rough mix of the show, sell it for 10 bucks. And I think if you're a band that's playing arenas, you're going to get, you know, maybe a thousand people that download it and it's free money. You already, uh, you know, played the show. Um, but yeah, I think it's like, if you want the sort of devotion that a band like fish has, then it's really, as you say, about making every night special um, and worth following. I mean, the reason why Fish is so addictive is all those things you mentioned um, about how they change up the set list and they have in-jokes and you never know what you're going to get. And that's why, you know, they can fill Madison Square Garden for 13 nights, which is, you know, crazy. It's something like a quarter of a million tickets, I would guess. Uh, but there's definitely not a quarter of a million <laughs> separate people going to see fish, right? That's right. probably, you know, maybe 50,000, I guess, uh, spread out over those 13 shows with, you know, a lot of multiple uh, visitors, I guess. Um, but, you know, they're all paying the same amount of money to the band. So it's a great strategy for a band, I think, to, to get people so worked up about you that, you want to follow them on tour. You want to go to multiple shows of a run. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, it, it all makes sense uh, from the outside looking in as a non-musician. Um, but, you know, the amount of investment of just, you know, sort of time in becoming a band that is good enough to do that, to play like that, uh, I think I'd, I have just zero perspective on. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's pivot to live albums here because, you know, we both made a list of our five favorite live albums. By the way, did you rank your five albums or are they? did you just pick five? I did not. I just picked five okay. sort of in representing different types of live album that I like. All right, that'll work. So we're going to talk about our five favorite live albums, a total of 10 live albums total. But before we get into that, I mean, I feel like for a long time, and maybe even still now, that live albums had sort of a checkered reputation. Like, you know, like the joke about them in the 70s and 80s and 90s was that if you were having a contract dispute or you were stalled on your, on your studio album or, or whatever the thing was, that you would put out a live album to sort of like, you know, to, to satiate the audience. You know, that it was sort of like a stopgap measure. Um, and I feel like in some respects, live albums are undervalued by a lot of people, but I've always loved live albums, and I know you do too. I'm wondering, like, what is your sort of defense of the live album format? Yeah, I think, you know, the bands that do it right are the bands that, I mean, it's obvious, have a good live show, but the bands that maybe approach their live show differently than they would their studio album, like, they use it as its own separate work, in a way, I guess. Um, like, a live album, like, yeah, as you say, it's mostly contractual obligation type stuff, like let's churn out the double live album to get out of this contract. Um, but there's, you know, the, the good live albums, the ones you remember, they are usually, it's like a side of the band that you just can't get from their studio album uh, for whatever reason. Or it's, you know, captures a moment in time that, uh, that, you know, you can't really get at any other way. So, I mean, that is definitely the minority of live albums, I think, but the ones that do get it, have a sort of 
you know, historical document and like, I don't know, sort of urgency that maybe a, you know, fussed over studio album can't really get to. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. And I would also say that along with preserving a band at a particular point in time, I always love, I think the best live albums also preserve sort of the sound in the room. Like you can hear the crowd or you can hear what's going on in the background where it's like I never got to see arena rock shows in the 70s, but there are certain arena rock live albums that I can listen to and I, I can feel like I'm sitting in a basketball arena in Pittsburgh. You know, because yeah, and a of the, cloud of smoke. Exactly. Like it, it, there is that sort of, you know, that documentary aspect uh, that is... Um, I just find to be very evocative. And, and it's not there on all live albums because, of course, there are lots of live albums that are just overdubbed to death, you know, like where they went into the studio and they corrected all the mistakes and it's essentially like a studio album in front of an audience. But um, I think the best ones are able to, you know, present the band or the artist in a very sort of vital way where, like you said, it's not in a sort of fussed over studio situation. It feels very vital and alive and all that, but it also has a rawness to it at the same time. Uh, that is that is very addictive. Um, I'm going to have you go first with your favorite live album. I feel obligated to say that there are many great live albums that we are not mentioning on our either of our lists. Um, I just want to shout out some of them, including Almer Brothers at Fillmore East, the James Brown, both of his Apollo records. Um, I'm trying to think of what else did not make our list. Kiss Alive is not in either of our lists. Are there any like honorable mentions that you want to just get out there before we get into the meat of our list? Yeah, they're sort of the ones on my short list that didn't make it. Uh, Waiting for Columbus, I think. You know, my Little Feet is like sort of a perfect example of what you're talking about, like that classic 70s arena room feel. Uh, just a real sort of chilled out, smoked out 70s arena rock vibe. Or um, we've, we've both talked about our love of Beach Boys in concert as like, sort of the subgenre of really coked up live albums. Right, 1973. You get, yeah, you get the Beach Boys sort of, uh, yeah, having a little fun, playing a little quicker <laughs> tempo. You're not really uh, sure why, but you can make some guesses. Right. Um, and then, uh, yeah, like uh, I really like Hawkwind's Space Ritual and sort of the uh, live album of new material sort of genre. Um, that's just like a great psych rock sci-fi psych rock album to, to put on and vibe out to right i'm sure i'm going to think of like a dozen more live albums that i love that i'm going to feel bad that we didn't mention but i'm just going to move on and curse myself later so <laughs> what is your what's what, what's the first record on your list of yeah yeah albums? so the first one that came to mind since i'm i've been sort of obsessing over it for the last few years is maybe a under the radar pick right off the bat but it's uh, folk singer Phil Oaks' Gunfight at Carnegie Hall. Uh, this is sort of fits what I, the very, very small sliver of live albums that I would describe as hostile audience live albums. <laughs> um, and I know you have one of these as well yeah. that we can segue right into. Um, I think, you know, talking about how, you know, having that crowd vibe is a key part of a good live album. I mean, it's it's even more exciting when it's not necessarily your typical adoring, cliched crowd um, and where you have an artist that is being sort of intentionally confrontational uh, and you get to hear just sort of the confused and angry reaction to that. So the Phil Oaks album is sort of uh, akin to the Dylan Royal Albert Hall concert, in quotes, um, where Phil Oaks had reinvented himself from political folk artist to sort of jokingly uh, wearing a gold suit and playing medleys of Buddy Holly songs and Elvis songs, uh, doing sort of a country rock thing. Uh, and the crowd was about half into it and half totally against it. Um, one of one of the best moments is when somebody yells at him, bring out Phil Oaks, <laughs> as if... <laughs> He was not actually who he, uh, you know, claimed to be. Um, and there's, a, I mean, a, I can't do it justice, but the backstory of these Carnegie Hall concerts is amazing. There was a bomb threat. Uh, at one point, he tried to break into the ticket office and broke his hand before the light, the late show, so he could barely play guitar during the late show. Um, just the fact that they would 
not only record these concerts, but actually put them out as a live album <laughs> right. is, is a wonder to me. Like, this is not exactly, you know, showing an artist putting his best foot forward. I mean, it, they're great shows, and his band is amazing, and the sound is really good, too. Uh, but it's just such a weird commercial move to put out an album where the crowd is, like, not having what you're selling. <laughs> uh, what year was that? Was that, like, late 60s? Like 70? Uh, I believe it was. I should have looked this up, but I think it's 73, I want to say. The okay. album came out a lot later. They didn't uh, want to release it at first, and then it only came out in, like, a limited run on a Canadian label. Uh, so it's a pretty uh, tortured story. Oh, I'm sorry, 1970 is when the concerts were, and they didn't come out until 1975. Okay. Uh, but it's got a great cover. It's got a great name, Go and Fight at Carnegie Hall. Um, I think, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good one to track down. Well, you mentioned the record on my list uh, when you were talking about the Oaks record, and that was, that's, of course, the Royal, the Royal Albert Hall bootleg, also released commercially as Live 66, the Bob Dylan in the Hawks record from their uh, historic 1966 tour of, uh, I guess, of England at that point. Um, and this is a very famous album. This is probably my favorite live album of all time. If I had to pick one as my favorite, this would be it. Um, of course, you have the very, uh, you, you have the two sets in this show. You have the acoustic show where, where Dylan is playing all these songs off of Blonde on Blonde which had not been released yet. It was just about to come out when he played this show in May of 1966. And he's obviously on some sort of downer when he's playing this set. And uh, if, you read, if you read like the Clinton like Halen book, um, he sort of dances around the fact that he thinks that maybe Dylan was doing heroin around this time or maybe like dabbling in heroin. Um, and when you listen to these shows, the acoustic sides definitely sound very sort of downy, drugged out. Uh, very slow, but also very beautiful. And then you have the electric side with the Hawks, where uh, Dylan has obviously had a, a pick-me-up of some sort between the two sets, uh, chemical or otherwise. And uh, it's just some of the most glorious, hard-charging rock and roll that's ever been recorded, as far as I'm concerned. And you have this glorious music being made, and then between every song, the crowd is booing him and it culminates with this famous moment at the end of the show where they play Like a Rolling Stone. And before they launch into the song, someone calls Bob Dylan Judas. And he says, play fucking loud to his band. And then they play this really long, drawn-out version, kind of almost like a dirgy version of Like a Rolling Stone. But again, very thrilling. It's very dramatic. It's great theater throughout the, the electric side. Um, of course, there was that box set that came out, uh, I guess that was last year, yeah, where they released every show from this tour, which I have and I've listened to it and I enjoy it. But really, you only need this album. Like if you're a casual fan, this is the one you need. Um, it really is, like we've been saying, you know, it's incredible music, but it's also incredible theater because of the audience. The audience hating it the entire time. And I just wonder, like, if Phil Oakes was inspired to put out his record as another form of Dylan worship because he yeah. wanted his own real Albert Hall experience. And he was like, I, 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 I suspect that by wearing the gold suit at those shows that he might've been provoking people into booing him you know, on some level. Oh, absolutely. Cause he and wanted he has Dylan some monologues uh, about the gold suit and why he's wearing it on the record as well. Um, I mean, the thing that's interesting about picking the Dylan album as a great live album is that he didn't, officially release it until what 40 years later uh, it was when like, it finally came out as the bootleg series yeah it was like late it was uh, the late 90s right that, that and it, it was out. you know everybody had the bootleg but uh and it was obviously very famous and pretty easy to find if you wanted to find it but um you know dylan himself wasn't like yes i want to put out that album where everybody boos me between songs <laughs> well yeah i mean i remember reading something where he said he didn't think the performances were good enough yeah, which is just like another weird Dylan thing to say that like yeah, yeah I don't want to put out the real Albert Hall show, but I will put out Knocked Out Loaded. You know, <laughs> Knocked Out Loaded does meet my expectations, but this incredible show does not. You know, yeah. that's just sort of the weird Dylan psychology, I guess. And that just real quick, the other thing I love about the that Dylan concert is that in the acoustic set, his harmonica playing is so like horrible, like intentionally <laughs> and like punk rock. And it, I think it is actually more like abrasive than any of the electrified set. And the people just eat it up 
Right. <laughs> the crowd's like, oh, this is amazing, this folk music, when he's just like blowing into his harmonica, like drunkenly almost. Well, um, I mean, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that like, you know, the the songs on the acoustic side are arguably more challenging. I mean, they're he's playing like uh, Desolation Row. He's playing, you know, these sort of, again, these songs from Blonde on Blonde that people didn't know yet. These sort of, you know, like uh, Fourth Time Around and... Uh, uh, I know he played Tambourine Man. That's not on Blonde on Blonde, but like he's playing these long, sort of beautiful, but you know, certainly not straightforward folk songs. And that's the that's the half that people loved. And then he's playing, I think, fairly straightforward kind of bluesy rock and roll in the second set. You know, that you think anyone would like, and that's the stuff they hate. And it's just because of this sort of aesthetic, you know, dislike of of amplified rock music. You know, that that's the only reason that they were booing it, but even though the first set is more challenging in a lot of ways. Um, let's go to our next album. What is the next album on your list? Uh, so next year I have a uh, predictable one, if you know me, which is uh, The Grateful Dead's Live Dead. Um, here, I think, the the only controversy is which Grateful Dead live album do you pick? <laughs> right. um, I mean, the Dead, I think, were you know the greatest live band of the 60s and 70s and so that you know sort of the heyday of the live albums so obviously they're going to have a lot of great live albums uh live dead to me i mean it's everybody has their preferences on what dead era they like um live dead i think really captures not just an awesome era but sort of like the classic set that they would play all the time in that era and it's just like aesthetically really beautiful how it only has like one song on two of the sides. Um, so side A only has one song, side three only has one song, side two only has two songs. Like it's just like this sort of intimidating monstrosity of music. Uh, it all flows together beautifully. It's just like this really nice hour and a half block of music. Uh, some of their you know best performances that were captured sort of professionally instead of um, by an audience taper. Uh, and yeah, I just, I, I love it a lot. I mean, I think we talked a little bit about like Europe 72 is probably a, a, a good alternative and maybe the only one that I would debate with this one for the Grateful Dead. But Europe 72 is one of those you mentioned that had a lot of overdubs afterwards, which the purist in me wants to reject it for that reason. Right. Um, and it also just, you know, it's, it isn't really like the jammy live experience of the Grateful Dead. It was sort of them getting into their more songy period. And it's a great, great record, but uh, not my favorite compared to Live Dead. Yeah, I mean, I love Live Dead. I don't have the Grateful Dead on my top five list, I think, because I almost think of them as like a separate entity. You know, like they have their live albums that, they, that, uh, that were released during the bulk of their career. And then they have this whole posthumous career where you have all the Dick's Picks albums that have come out and all these other things where, I mean, there's like a lot of Dick's Picks albums that I would probably put on before Live Dead or Europe 72 or Dead Set or Reckoning or any of the other kind of official live albums. Uh, and I am personally also more of like a 70s Dead person than the 60s Dead. Live Dead came out, I think, in 69. Yeah, 69 so. shows. Yeah, And, um, you know... I love. I mean, I like all eras of the Grateful Dead. The, the 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 sort of knock against that era for me is that there's like too much pig pen, like pig pen singing, like uh, uh, you know, turn on your love light. Like yep, it's like eh, one of those sidelong tracks. Is it is. It's like, I don't really. Your, it's like whenever light, yeah. whenever pig pen starts singing, I'm like, eh, you know, I'm not as into it as like other stuff. But you know, not saying I don't like it, but it's not my favorite uh, era. But yeah, that would be the only hard thing for me with the Grateful Dead trying to pick one album it's like such a long long rabbit hole of live recordings with them yeah to, to pick one it's like you'd almost need like a separate list just for grateful dead live albums right <laughs> it's the, they're their own universe but yeah i mean you mentioned europe 72 i probably lean towards that even with all the overdubs for people that aren't into the grateful dead that's usually the album i point them to as saying like this is a good album to get into the band because there's great songs on this record. It's not as jammy as their other stuff, but there's enough jamminess that you get a flavor of it. You know, you know, certainly like on Morning Dew, for instance, being like kind of the archetypical archetypical track in that regard. Yeah. So that seems a little more user friendly than Live Dead is uh, for yeah, like a new, for a newcomer. Yeah. But um, Live Dead is an awesome record. I definitely also uh, 
endorse that as well. The next album on my list um, is Cheap Trick at Budokan. And I love this record for many reasons. I, it's, I wanted to put it on my list because I feel like it's representative of that arena rock era of live albums, which I think is, when we talk about live albums, I know for me, like that's the era I think of immediately first. Like that was when live albums were probably at their commercial height where you had records like at Budokan, Kiss Alive, and Peter Frampton's uh, you know, Comes Alive. Right. Those, those kind of like being the triptych, I guess, of arena rock live albums is you know being big albums that sold millions of copies and also spawned hit singles. Um, yeah, and also albums that all bands where the live album was their biggest hit record, right? Which is kind of a weird phenomenon too. Yeah, like we're ba- like they all sort of maybe struggled a little bit with their studio albums. Uh, you know, like they you know all of those artists put out a series of of studio albums that didn't really sell that well, and then they put out this live record that just went through the roof. And like with, with Cheap Trick, um, you know, I Want You to Want Me, the version from this, from, from at Budokan is the one that gets played on the radio. Like the original version that's on In Color, their second record, is this sort of, I think kind of a tepid version of it. It's very poppy, it doesn't really rock very much, and they just tore it up for the live version, and it's a way better version of the song, and that's the one that's popular. You know, also the the version of Surrender that's on at Budokan. I mean, the the studio version is really good too. But you know, Surrender I think on at Budokan that is the definitive version. Um, and you know, in the case of Cheap Trick, you know, I think they've put out a lot of great records. But to me, they are have always been a live band first. In the same way that, that the Grateful Dead is. The Grateful Dead is is a live band first because of the improvisations and changing their set every night. And Cheap Trick is, I think. They don't improvise, but they have a showmanship when they play live, and they just have a rawness uh, on their live records that their studio albums don't have. Their studio albums tend to be fairly cleaned up uh, affairs and and a little sterile sometimes compared to the live stuff. Uh, So at Budokan, I think it's just such a great souvenir from that era of arena rock, and yet it doesn't seem dated. It's a very direct, powerful record. Um, I think it... If you want to make a case that Cheap Trick belongs in the company of like the era's punk bands, Budokan would be your best sort of evidence of that. It, it rocks way harder than their studio albums from that period. So, and it's it, another one with a really unusual sort of crowd noise element. Exactly. As well, since you have a room full of chipper Japanese girls. <laughs> exactly, and that's another reason why I want you to want me is so good on the record because the Japanese girls are doing the backing vocals essentially. Right. Uh, so yeah. It, I think it's always a good policy to play in front of teenage Japanese girls uh, if you're a rock band. I think that audience, very excited, very excited people squealing joyously to Cheap Trick. It's a great thing to hear. Um, what is the next record on your list? Uh, so next I have The Talking Heads, another one where I had to sort of choose between two really awesome live albums. Um, yes. I went with Stop Making Sense. Uh, and I have to admit that, you know, it's somewhat influenced by like it being the soundtrack to the best concert film ever made. So that helps it a lot. Um, but the name of this band is Talking Heads is also a great live album, uh, that people should check out if they haven't heard. It's a little lesser known, but, uh, they did a deluxe reissue of that, you know, several years ago. That is, is, is an awesome sort of career retrospective live album. And that came uh, out a couple years, cause like Side Making Sense came out in like 84. And I think the name of the band is Talking Heads came out like in 82. So like a little bit earlier, yeah, a little bit earlier. And so like speaking in tongues isn't represented on the first live record that's sort of like their first four albums and i think it's like remain in light like actually isn't it like i think one disc is like from the late 70s and then one is from like the remain in light tour i think it's like yeah, it's two different eras. It's like four or five different sort of sessions or shows or eras squished together right so yeah it's not quite as cohesive and i would say that's you know what i really like about stop making sense both as a movie and as an album is how just sort of conceptually well thought out it is um, we talk a lot about the live album as being sort of exciting for its like spontaneous element. Um, the Stop Making Sense shows were definitely not spontaneous in any sort of normal way. I mean, if you've seen the movie, it's there's very you know sort of strict 
choreography involved with all of it. Um, <laughs> Lots of running and, in place. And costume changes. And yeah, uh, you like know, moving also... instruments onto the stage. And, and, and this, may, this may be another cocaine album, too. I feel it, like cocaine possibly, yeah. was in the building. If you watch the movie, <laughs> they're way too chipper. Yeah, yeah, it's true. They are very revved up. It's true. Um, but yeah, great movie. And the album, too, I think the performances are just super awesome. And it gives you this sort of nice narrative arc of the Talking Heads career in a way um, that is really cool. And yeah, it's uh, it's just good top to bottom. And like another one where they did a uh, reissue of it sort of for the CD era that was, you know, longer it has all the songs from the movie um, instead of the sort of abridged original version. Um, and yeah, it's, I might listen to that more than any Talking Heads album. It's just like when I need Talking Heads, that's a good direct hit. Yeah, and I would I would definitely recommend buying the expanded version over the the shorter version. I mean, sometimes it's not sometimes albums don't improve just because you put extra tracks on, but I think that's an example of really getting a sense of what you like like what you said, the narrative arc of that show, uh when you can hear all the songs. And you know, one thing I love about that show is that it builds, you know, like how it the first song is David Byrne playing Psycho Killer on an acoustic guitar with a drum machine. And then the next song, I think Tina Weymouth comes out. I think they play Heaven. And then uh, Chris France, the drummer, comes out and they play uh, like Found a Job. And, it, and then Jerry Harrison comes out in the next song. And you can just see the band growing. And then, you know, at, at that time, the Talking Heads were playing with like probably, I don't know, like close to a dozen backing musicians or so. So like just watching the band grow and they just get they just sound fuller and fuller and fuller. And it really is like, you know, not only is the set list sort of reflective of their whole career, but it all, just the sound of it reflects sort of the growth that that band had going from, you know, this sort of art punk, uh, you know, very stripped down band in the late seventies to being this very sort of expansive, you know, funk band by the mid eighties. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's why I love it. Yeah. Great. I like it too. And yeah, I think it, with Talking Heads records. I think I do like that one more than my name. Than the name of the band is Talking Heads, but they're both essential. Like you definitely get stopped making sense if you haven't listened to Talking Heads, and then go immediately to the name of the band is Talking Heads. Like you will not go wrong uh, with those records. My next record um, is an album that I have made the argument is the greatest rock record of all time. Like I don't really believe that anymore, but there was a time in my life where I felt that way, um, and that is the Who. Live at Leeds, um, just and when I made that case, what I was saying is that this, that the way that the Who sounded at this time, where you know you've got Roger Daltrey, archetypical lead singer of the late '60s, early '70s. You have Pete Townsend, heavy riffing guitar player, John Entwistle with these metallic bass lines, and then of course Keith Moon, who is essentially the lead instrumentalist in the Who, just drum soloing throughout every song. Um, they just sounded like how I wanted a live rock and roll band to sound. You're just pulverizing, energetic, and yet also melodic and um, capable of tenderness at when it's needed. You know, But the ability to go from quiet to just extreme volume, um, that's what The Who is able to do on this record. And th this is an example of another record that has been re-released in many different versions. The, the original record when it came out, I believe only had six songs. And that was because there's a 14 minute My Generation on the record. And there's right. also like a long version of Magic Bus. Kind of an interminable Magic Bus, yeah. Um, <laughs> hey man, that could go on forever. I love Magic Bus on there. Um, and then there's another version. The woodblocks, yeah. And there's another version where it was expanded to 14 songs, which is probably the version I know the best. I actually had the short version on cassette, I shoplifted it from a store near my house uh, when I was 13. Uh, I'm not proud of that. I, I feel like the statute of limitations has expired on this by now. Um, and then there was a double disc version where uh, it included a set where The Who plays Tommy in its entirety. So you can buy a couple different versions. I would recommend the 14 song version, um, but you can get the double disc one too. That's good. I mean, there's a lot of different live versions of Tommy. But that 14-song version is pretty great. And, um, yeah, I just feel like, you know, The Who, I think, made a lot of great albums, but they, didn't, they, they never sounded quite as strong or as powerful 
on their studio records as they did as a live band. And uh, the way that they sounded in 1970 when Live at Leeds was recorded, I mean, it just captures them at a pinnacle where they had been touring so much that they could just, you know, play the doors off of anything. Like they were super well rehearsed and yet they were also like not burned out yet (laughs) as they would, you know, getting into the 70s. Uh, it's just, it, you know, it's a band at the peak of their powers that's still hungry. And uh, I, I think it's still one of the most powerful rock and roll records I've ever heard, studio or live album. Uh, so, yeah, I, I highly recommend Live at Leeds. I, I assume you're a Live at Leeds guy, too? Yeah, yeah, and I'm a big fan of rock operas and Tommy, and so I would I would urge you to listen to the, double, the full double-disc concert that has... <laughs> The full version of Tommy, which the live version of Tommy is, is really cool because it's right. completely different from the studio record. It's like almost like one long medley of Tommy instead of you know this sort of fussy, uh, you know, uh, ambitious album. Um, yeah, no, Live at Leeds is great, and if you look at it in the context of like the albums they had put out to that point, um, it sounds completely different, and it's a great like sort of historical record of why the who were such a big scary band to people at that time and sort of the the wild instrument smashing who uh that you know that built their reputation whereas even a lot of their a lot of their singles and a lot of their albums at that time still sounded kind of genteel it wasn't really till who's next that they sounded like the who on a studio recording um, and again, three for three on your picks for interesting crowds because you have the like drunken, I don't, whatever the English equivalent of frat boy is at uh, <laughs> Leeds University, just like, you know, hugely in the palm of the Who's hand. I don't think they're, from the sound of the crowd, there wasn't a single woman in the audience at that show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that was true, not just at the Leeds University, but probably at most Who shows in 1970. That there were not a lot of women probably hanging out. The Who, I think, is definitely like the quintessential dude band. Yeah, masculine band through and through, yeah. Uh, what's your next record? Uh, so the next one I have uh, is a Neil Young record, and he has a lot of great live albums, though he has the quirk of putting out live albums that are entirely made up of songs he hasn't released before. Uh, I went with Time Fades Away. Uh, I very easily could have gone with Russ Never Sleeps, too. Uh, Russ Never Sleeps, I think, kind of suffers from the overdub fake live album syndrome we talked about earlier. Yeah. Uh, but Time Fades Away definitely does not have that. <laughs> and it's a great album. It was sort of his great lost album for so long. Uh, he didn't ever want it put out on CD. Uh, I think only recently it has come out on CD. It definitely came out on record because I bought it. Uh, as part of his re-release series, and you can listen to it digitally, stream it, whatever, stream it on your Pono uh, for the first time. <laughs> and um, yeah, Time Fades Away is a great album because it is, again, sort of a document of a controversial moment in Neil's career. Uh, part of the story of why he didn't want it put out was because it was such a miserable tour for him. And it was recorded on his uh, 1973 tour, which was the Harvest Tour, so he's touring off of, you know, his biggest success. Uh, People came out expecting to hear nice, uh, smooth, folk pop, Heart of Gold songs, and Neil decided to dump, you know, sort of the start of his doomiest period on them uh, because Danny Witten famously died right before they left for the tour. Uh, He wasn't very happy with his band or his sound, and they were kind of working it out as they went along. They eventually, at one point, added Crosby and Nash to the tour just to try and kick him out of his stupor or something. I don't know. Uh, And at the end of it, he was playing, you know, the shows were basically half new material that hadn't appeared on record before. Uh, So after the tour was done, they took uh, eight songs uh, from that tour, or it's actually there's one that was uh, recycled from earlier, I guess. But uh, eight songs on the record that were all brand new, uh, but recorded live and put it out. So um, I mean, I think it, the, the album had a lot of luster for a long time, just because it was hard to hear. Like I remember buying a overpriced bootleg CD of it in college uh, back when that was like you know they had the secret box of bootleg CDs under the counter you had to ask for. Um, but now that you can listen to it pretty availably, uh, it's, uh, you know, sort of fits right in with that on the beach, tonight's the night, 
uh, really dark and sort of spare and raw and uh, all the bum notes left in type of Neil Young, which is, you know, basically my favorite era of my favorite musician ever. So. Yeah, I, uh, I have the LP cover of Time Fades Away, uh, a framed LP cover hanging in my office. I actually had it framed in one of my apartments, too. So, so I uh, concur with this choice. You know, Time Fades Away is, is part of a subgenre of live albums that function as not studio records, but like they're not traditional live albums in that, you know, it's just the artist playing greatest hits and then they release it. It's like all new songs, but it's a live record. And there's Time Fades Away is, is, is a big example of that. There's also Jackson Brown's Running on Empty, where not only was he playing songs on stage, but he was also recording himself, recording on tour buses and hotel rooms and stuff like that. And there's also the, the R.E.M. record, New Adventures in Hi-Fi. A lot of that was recorded on their tour for Monster, which kind of captures R.E.M. at a similar time to what Neil Young was going through when he was doing Time Fades Away. Um, yeah, I love this record. Um, as you mentioned, it's part of the Ditch trilogy with On the Beach and Tonight's the Night, but I feel like it's sort of the lost record out of that trilogy. It hasn't been available. People haven't heard it as much. I remember I first heard the title track from Time Fades Away in college in a short film directed by Morton Scorsese that came out in the 70s called All American Boy. Hmm. It's about this guy, Stephen Prince, and Time Fades Away plays over the opening credits. And I was like, that song is amazing. <laughs> like, and I knew it was Neil Young, but I didn't know what record it was on. Because like, it was like, this record almost didn't exist for a long time. It had been kind of erased from, uh, you know, sort of the memory banks. Um, but it's nice to have seen it kind of get its due as a cult record. Because, like, for all the reasons that you said, it really, I think the songs are great, you know, the title track, L.A., Don't Be Denied, a lot of great songs, but it's, all, it's as much about the vibe on that record as the songs. And it really captures a fascinating moment in Neil Young's career when he wasn't very happy, but it's, it's compelling to listen to. Um, and the, uh, the, the cover art, as you mentioned, we both had it framed. Um, it is maybe my favorite album cover. Uh, and you, you talk about capturing this 70s arena rock feeling. Um, that picture has it all, I think. Yeah. Uh, taken from the lip of the stage, looking out at the crowd. I mean, it's it's just, it's perfect. Yeah, and I know there's a shot in Almost Famous where Cameron Crowe recreated that cover. Yeah, yeah. Which is cool. Um, my next album um, is another one that captures a moment in time. Um, and I think... You know, kind of going back to the Talking Heads record, I think this record also has its own narrative arc. It's a very dark narrative arc. It almost feels like a sort of a preemptive uh, wake when you listen to it, but it's Nirvana uh, uh, MTV Unplugged in New York, uh, 1984. And, you know, a lot of the records that we've talked about so far, you know, have dated from the 60s and 70s. This is like a relatively recent addition like, to the live album canon. But I know, like, when I was a teenager, this was like a huge record. Um, that you know, this essentially functioned as like a new Nirvana record because it. I mean, the, the special aired before Kurt Cobain died, but the album came out after he died. So, a lot of the songs off this record ended up being radio. Uh, you know, they, they were played on the radio, like uh, "The Man Who Sold the World" and the, the version of "About a Girl" that's on this record. Um, and when you listen to it, I mean, it, it really does take you through. Nirvana's career again it starts with about a girl which was the first song on the first Nirvana album and it ends uh, with this absolutely chilling cover of uh, In the Pines by Leadbelly it's on the record it's known as Where Did You Sleep Last Night and uh, I mean I listened to this record again last night and you know I've heard this record a million times and you know you think it would wear off the effect but like the vocal on that song especially at the end when he starts screaming, uh, it still chokes me up. It's like one of the greatest vocals I think anyone has ever recorded that I've ever heard. Um, and, you know, all the Meat Puppets covers that are on here, I mean, it's just uncanny, like, how many of the songs are about death, you know, uh, on this record. And it's kind of impossible to listen to this record and not just think about Kurt Cobain's suicide. Um, but I do think that the album has power beyond just sort of the morbid aspect of it um 
it's the quietest album that either one of us has talked about so far. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's, I think it's probably the heaviest. It's, you know, like, again, listening to it last night, I, I still feel like it has like a heaviness to it emotionally uh, that hasn't really diluted for me. Um, were you a fan of this record? Were you a Nirvana guy at all? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think anybody our age had the same <laughs> sort of experience of, yeah, watching that special. I had taped it on a VHS and watched it over and over again and bought the record when it came out. And, yeah, I mean, it was it became sort of – it was already very well known and became sort of, uh, yeah, instantly associated with his death since that they happened so close together. Um, I remember it being – you know, beyond sort of the Kurt Cobain tragic elements of it, um, the fact that they gave, you know, three songs over to the Meat Puppets was a big deal for me and a lot of people, I think. Um, the Meat Puppets weren't, weren't on anybody's radar who was, you know, 14, 15, and 1994. Um, <clears throat> so that was like kind of a cool opening into like a, a, a a new band and a new world of of music too, um, which was a like a pretty cool thing for them to do. And then you know just the whole concept of unplugged albums at that time, I felt like it was still a nice, cool, novel concept. And I remember watching a lot of bands like Nirvana play that. Like the Pearl Jam one has always stood out to me uh, as something that I used to like to watch a lot. And just you know things with with sort of historical perspective, it's kind of ridiculous, uh, you know, that just taking alternative rock songs and making them acoustic was this, like, you know, <laughs> master stroke. <laughs> um, but, yeah, at the time, that was uh, that was pretty cool. That, I, was a, that was a cool novelty. And I think, like, in the case of, you know, Unplugged in New York, it, it, it does feel like a, a, like a logical next artistic step. You know, it wasn't just a gimmick for Nirvana, I don't think. And I think maybe it's because they play so many covers on the record that, yeah. like, they're not just—it's not just like, hey, here's on a plane acoustic. You know, they're also doing like "Jesus Don't Want Me for a Sunbeam," which you can see that, like, if Nirvana had continued, that maybe they would have went more down the path of how that song sounds or how those Meat Puppet songs sound, where it's almost mm-hmm. this sort of like spooky late night, vaguely countryish sounding rock music you know almost like a neil young vibe too on some of the songs um to me i think that's why that record stands apart it it feels like a statement like a studio album would feel like a statement not just sort of like a recycling of old songs the way a lot that a lot of live albums do it really kind of hangs together thematically i think when you listen to it which i think is why it's so powerful uh, even now, even after it's become almost a cliche in a way, like to you know listen to that album and to think about Kurt Cobain. Um, okay, we each have one album left, and I will again let you go first. What's the last record on your list? Uh, yeah, so the last one I picked was uh, Sam Cooke's Live at the Harlem Square Club. Um, it was recorded in 1963, but it didn't come out until 1985, um, I guess. The backstory is that they recorded it. The record company was like, "Let's we have this young rising star in Sam Cooke. Let's record him sort of in his native like club elements at the time. Uh, they got the tapes and they decided, oh, this is way too raw and messy and real for us to actually put this out. And then they did another live album a year later, I think, which is much more smoothed over and commercial. Um, but fortunately, somebody found it in the vaults and put it out. Um, I think, you know, you mentioned that uh, we left Live at the Apollo off the list. Uh, that's an album that I think maybe it's just been talked about so breathlessly that it's hard for me to really connect with. But I think this record, um, because it wasn't so overhyped, maybe I just came to it more naturally. But I think it captures sort of a similar vibe to Live at the Apollo, where it's, uh, you know, uh, a relic of this sort of you know, so much of the live albums we've been talking about are sort of like peak classic rock type live albums, uh, whereas this one and Live at the Apollo are sort of before that era when the live show was, you know, had a different form. And what I like about this is it's it's a really short live album. It's only, I think it's barely 40 minutes. Um, it is just like this really, really tight set that feels almost sort of like pre-rock and roll to me. 
where it's almost a medley of his songs. It, you know, it's got like an introduction and an outro. The crowd is super into it. Like there's lots of like great banter and just sort of like back and forth between the performers and the crowd. Um, and yeah, I just like it as a as a different sort of live album, sort of of of, of olden days uh, before you know the the sort of overblown double live two hour long live album. Yeah, I love this up record too, and I think one reason or the reason I like it is that you know Sam Cooke is obviously an amazing singer, but like when you listen to a lot of his records, you know there's a smoothness to a lot of his a lot of his recorded work where he's like crooning a lot of the time and he's really great at that but on the live record you really get to hear the grit in his voice and it is pre-rock and roll in a lot of ways but it's also it, it rocks a lot harder than his studio stuff does like i think about i think the last song is bringing on home to me on that record and it's this sort of drawn out version of it and i mean you can hear uh, you know, the Rod Stewart, you know, like in his <laughs> yeah. voice, you know, or the smokiness, the yeah. smokiness, you know, you can hear the influence that he had on a generation of singers after him, um, that he could just really be forceful, uh, and powerful in a way that wasn't just sort of like the smooth pop star that he was on record. Uh, so to me, that's what, that's what was revelatory about that album. The first time I heard it, because I always loved Sam Cooke's voice, but I, I always wanted his records to, have a little bit more maybe thrust to them hmm. than they did a lot of the time. And the, that live record like supplied it and then some for me. And it is like, if I'm going to listen to Sam Cooke, like that is the record I'm going to put on most yeah. likely. Um, my last record um, is kind of similar to the Sam Cooke record in that it presents its, uh, uh, its star in a, in a somewhat different light. And that is Jay-Z MTV Unplugged. And I have two Unplugged albums on my list, which I did not expect going in, because uh, I, I think there's a lot of bad Unplugged stuff. But you know, the Nirvana one and the Jay-Z one, I think, tower over the others, at least in terms of specials that were, that were released as albums. And you know, I, with the Jay-Z record, I think you know, it's easy, easy to forget the separation that existed in hip-hop in the early 2000s, where you had commercial hip hop and then you had underground hip hop and like there wasn't a whole lot of interaction. And I think this album was actually a big uh, factor in sort of breaking down those walls because you had Jay-Z up front and then as his backing band, you had The Roots. And um, I know Questlove has talked about how at the time it was sort of controversial for The Roots to agree to appear on this record because there were a lot of other people in the underground, you know, sort of rap community that just thought that Jay-Z was like this commercial pop, you know, version of what they were doing. And it was much more important at that time to kind of have that separation of, you know, sort of what was popular and like what was, you know, sort of considered to be more artistically relevant or, or, or uh, credible. Um, and just to hear these two, you know, forces come together on this record, it really kind of brings out something in the roots. I think, it loosens up the roots a lot more than they were maybe on the records at that time. And in Jay-Z, it really kind of brings out this really great energy to him as a live performer. And they just play it off each other brilliantly throughout this record um, where you know he's running through medleys of some of his songs, but he's performing a lot of, of the, like, the big hits off of the Blueprint record, which was the recent record when this record came out. Um, and I don't know, it's like I love a lot of Jay-Z's studio records, but there's a spirit to the Unplugged record and an energy that I feel like I don't get from his studio work. And I, I, I still find myself going back to this record first and foremost if I want to listen to Jay-Z. Like it's still one of the best, uh, I think it's one of his best records, and I think it's one of the best live records just of like the 21st century. Um, are you familiar with this record? You know, I haven't listened to it that much, I have to admit. Um, I remember it when it aired, and I remember that was right around when I, I guess, sort of first started allowing myself to enjoy Jay-Z for a lot of the sort of underground mainstream reasons that you're referencing. Um, but yeah, the Blueprint, I liked a lot, and so I remember watching this basically to, to see him do the Blueprint tracks uh, in a different context. And I mean, it's interesting because it's like, yeah, the Unplugged thing was such a gimmick but there were these albums that sort of popped out and well 
And, uh, ex- yeah, and got like, past that. And like in the case of the Jay-Z record, like the unplugged aspect of it is sort of dubious to me too because, <laughs> yeah. I mean... I don't know. It's not like these songs are acoustic, really. I mean, you know, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of like electric piano running through it, and obviously the drums are really prominent. I mean, to me, it's just like a great live record, and it's a great live record in, in that it's. I mean, I guess you could say it's unplugged because it just seems more intimate, maybe, than like the average Jay Z show. Like Jay Z plays arenas, you know, and he was already playing arenas at that time. Whereas here he was like just like in a, like a small theater or whatever. I remember it being in the TRL studio. Yeah, that's Am right. Am I wrong in remembering that? No, like I, with the window looking over Times Square. <laughs> actually, I think you are right. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So I mean, you know, there was probably you know maybe a hundred people yeah. watching him. So you know, it has a level of intimacy that Jay Z. I think you know because like you know, I mean, we just associate Jay Z as this you know huge star. He's like you know the Rolling Stones of rap. You know, he's been called that many times. Um, this sort of like arena rock, almost now he's like a stadium or arena rap, almost like stadium rap type person. Uh, so to be able to hear him play with this great band in a small room and feel really energized by it, and and you can tell that they're all enjoying each other's company. Um, it, again, it just presents him in, in a totally different light. That's I, I just love it. You know, it, it it's like scaled down, humanized Jay Z. You know, which you don't get a lot on his records. Uh, especially like the later records that he's put out. Um, so we just listed 10 records for people, 10 great live records. I think we've given people a lot of things to listen to. You know, as we were talking, I thought about the Lou Reed record, Take No Prisoners. Right. We'll put that on the uh, honorable mentions list. Uh, but yeah, I don't know, man. I, I think we've made a good case for the live record being good and important and worth listening to. Yeah. I mean, uh, what, to, to bring it full circle, I'm actually kind of interested to see what happens to the live album as it becomes easier for bands to just release any old show. Right. Um, because, you know, this used to be the only way to hear your favorite artist live. Um, but now, you know, there's bands on Bandcamp that put up their own live shows. There's bands like Fish that have their own app to put out live shows. Like, um, the live album itself has kind of been, you know, even more marginalized. You know, people do like... I don't know, live Spotify sessions and stuff like that, that is, you know, not very well promoted, but, you know, is out there. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to see what will go forward as, you know, sort of the equivalent of the live album in yeah, this, I mean, this weird era. That's a great point. I mean, I think in a way it'll have to be an album like Jay-Z Unplugged, where it's a totally unique show. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it'd be something that the average fan couldn't go to. You know, so like, 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 even if Jay Z decided to stream every live show he does, that unplugged show will still be unique and would warrant a live album versus right. something else. So, you know, it may be something like that. But yeah, that that will be a topic for another podcast, perhaps. Uh, the future of the live album. It'll Sounds be curious good. to see. But hey, Rob, thanks again, man. It's always a pleasure. You are a good friend of the pod. All right. Yeah. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. <laughs> hey, man. Take care. Yep. See you. All right. That was me and Rob Mitchum talking about live records and live music. Um, and yeah, head out immediately after this episode and listen to all these records that we talked about. Every single one of them is fantastic. I recommend, of course, my choices as well as Rob's. Um, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor for this week's episode. It was Harry's. And again, I want to encourage you to check out that deal at harrys.com backslash rock. You can get all of those free razors. Uh, for If you're a listener of this podcast, all you have to do is pay for shipping. It's a really great deal. And I know this. I say this every week, but I say it because it's true that this show would not exist without you guys. So thank you so much for your support. Uh, and uh, thank you for listening and, and talking about us and spreading the word.